Hi, I'm Brandon. And I'm Megan. And we're on a journey to improve our marriage, our family, our faith, our fitness, well, just about everything. Along the way, we might accidentally give a tiny bit of solid advice, so join us as we chat each week. Welcome Welcome to to the the Fools in Love Podcast. Hi, guys. Today, we're pumped to have Dr. Jagadeesan on the Fools in Love Podcast. Dr. Jag is board certified in sleep medicine and neurology and has been diagnosing and treating patients with sleep disorders for 15 years. Since we all know how vital sleep is, not only to function, but to truly flourish, we're ready to dig in this week on all things sleep. Dr. Jag, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Brandon. Absolutely. So before we dig in, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got started in sleep medicine and Kind of what made you decide to, to pursue sleep? Well, as you know, I'm an MD physician. I initially did my medical school in India, and then I did my neurology residency at NYU. After my residency, I went for epilepsy fellowship at Long Island Jewish Medical Center, which is also in New York. And one of my preceptors was sleep researcher. So I ended up working with him and just falling in love with the technology, the polysomnogram, and, and the sleep clinic. And that's how I gradually switched from pure neurology practice to sleep and neurology hybrid. So I've been doing this for 15 years. I work as a neurohospitalist half the time and other half of the time. I supervise the sleep lab and taking care of sleep patients and reading sleep studies. So you're not busy at all then? Not at all. <laughs> I sleep most of the time. <laughs> So I know that a big part of our issues with sleep, as adults at least, is that we just have terrible sleep hygiene. We teach our kids all these great ways to prepare for sleep, and we talk to them and help them introduce bedtime routines. But somehow, when it comes to our own habits at bedtime, we're failing. What are some of the biggest barriers to a good night's rest when it comes to our sleep hygiene as adults? Well, Megan, your question itself has the answer. You said poor (laughs) hygiene. That's the answer. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we don't prioritize sleep. That's the problem. You know, I think we just do everything else and put the sleep as the last thing we have to do. But, you know, there's a lot of focus on exercise and taking supplements and diet and things like that. But the lowest hanging fruit for health is actually sleep. So I think if you prioritize sleep, then I think we'll make more attention to getting good sleep and that will help improve our sleep habits. Another thing that, that really affects our sleep is just we are constantly connected uh, to our work and our social atmosphere. So we are just constantly, there's no like demarcation from work to sleep. So that's, uh, I think that's a big barrier. So that can be, can make some lifestyle adjustments to create a barrier between your work, your social life and, and sleep. I would say the light exposure at night is a big barrier now with a lot of gadgets having excessive blue lights, which can directly affect our neurohormonal system by reducing melatonin production, which helps us fall asleep. So that would be another big barrier. So I would say sleep hygiene, staying connected to your work 24-7, and then excessive blue lights are the three main barriers for modern life. Yeah, I know for me, I'm guilty of having that TV in the room and, you know, being on my phone, like you said, at all hours of the night. And I have looked at a lot of things where it shows the effects that the blue light has from all those different devices. 
Are there any tips that you have as far as ways we can avoid that? Because I know we, like you said, we always have that technology in front of us and sometimes it's needed, even though we want to disconnect, sometimes we need, we need to have that near. So is there tips and tricks we could use to make it a better experience when we do have to use those technologies? I would say get the TV out of the bedroom or even out of the house. I think the TV is pretty toxic, both with the light and the uh, contents of the TV. You know, it's just a lot of stress just watching the news and TV programs. So TV is like the biggest no-no for bedrooms. Um, With phone, I'm okay, you know, because I understand it's just not practical to not have a phone because pretty much everybody relies on phone for the alarm and, you know, here. Uh, getting messages and stuff. So with phone, I would say, you know, having the um, nighttime, uh, you know, what, what do you call that, nighttime setting where they have less blue light, which is an orange hue. As I think it on the iPhone, I don't know about the other phones. Uh, you can set it to nighttime mode. And also when you have it in the bedroom, just make sure you keep it like at least, you know, a couple of feet away from your bed and make it, you know, face down so you're not like, constantly exposed by the light whenever it comes on with notification. And again, turning off the notification and trying not to look at the phone when you wake up in the middle of the night will be a good strategy. If you have to watch TV or if you have to be on the computer, I highly recommend getting like a blue light blocking glasses. There are a lot of pretty cheap ones sold on Amazon. Just wearing them in the evening uh, while you're working on the devices can help mitigate some of the blue light exposure. That's some great, great tips. So if we remove the TV from the room, because I know me and Megan are both guilty, like I said, of having that in the room. But if we remove that from the room and Mm -hmm. then what do we like, what should we be doing in our bedroom as far as preparing ourselves for sleep? What would you tell the listeners out there that they should do? Like, Like read a book? Like what is a good activity to do prior to sleep when you're trying to replace that TV exposure? So, you know, I would say use the bedroom, you know, purely for sleep and sex and nothing else. Um, So you don't even have to go to the bedroom unless you're ready to sleep. Uh, If you go to the bed and if you're not able to fall asleep, sure, you can read a book on a low light or paper white Kindle or something. But anything that has the least amount of light exposure would be helpful. You should be able to go to bed, turn off the lights, and then, you know, fall asleep if you have a very good sleep hygiene and a sleep routine. So you should, I definitely don't recommend reading anything on the iPad or iPhone uh, while sitting in bed because those are pretty powerful blue lights which can suppress your melatonin production. Apparently I have some work to do on all these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, paper books are good with a little bit of a table lamp or... You know, getting like a Kindle Paperwhite or something that doesn't have any blue light can also be helpful. Gotcha. Yeah, I have the, I have the Kindle White thing down, so there's that. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. kind of touched on this already a little bit, but what do we do if we can't sleep one night? I mean, if it's not like a recurring issue or anything, but if our brains just won't shut off, what do we do so that we're not ruining our chance for the whole night? If it's just here and there, I don't think you should stress about it because Everybody have one bad night here and there. So, you know, worrying too much about sleep itself can become a perpetuating problem. Uh, I see this condition called psychophysiologic insomnia. This, this is pretty much one-third of my practice. 
where they worry so much about sleep, just that worry and anxiety of sleep itself will make them not able to fall asleep. So if it's just here and there, bad nights, just identify what triggered that bad night and try to avoid that. Other than that, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Gotcha. How much sleep does a typical adult need? Typical adult, I would say it ranges from 6 to 10 hours, but 90% of the population would, would need about 7 to 8 hours of sleep. Pretty much everybody thinks they need less sleep than they get. So I think if you look at the overall population, we're all getting about hour to two hours of less, less sleep than we need. So I would say seven to eight hours is the optimal level for an adult. Yeah, and I, I, I think a lot of people, and I see a lot of it out there in the media as they cover sleep more, but I know a lot of people, they try to get the number of sleep this number of hours of sleep per week, but then they may not get that. And then as they go on, they try to get to the weekend and then they're like, well, I'll just sleep in on the weekend. I'll sleep 12 hours and I'll get completely refreshed and then I'll be good to go. But I, I wonder what your opinion is on that because as far as I know, you can't really catch up on sleep. Yeah, that's a pretty dangerous trend. Our body clock in our sleep-wake cycle is trying to constantly be in, in touch with the external cues, your light, your food, your activities. So if you don't have a strict bedtime and a wake-up time, if you just have different times to go to bed and different time to wake up, some nights four hours, some nights 10 hours, then you, your, your clock constantly is desynchronized from the external cues. So I don't think that's a good sleep habit. If you look at the sleep hygiene, you know, con- you know constant bedtime and wake-up time is like number one. So that, that habit is there, and sometimes you know, school and work makes you do that, but I don't think it's very healthy. It's not, it's not the optimal way of getting good sleep. Even on the weekends, I would keep within an hour of, if you wake up on weekdays at 7, weekends I'll go till 8 maybe at the most. So what I hear you saying is you really should be having a – similar sleep routine pretty much every day of the week, including the weekend. Exactly. Uh, you need a, every day throughout the day, you know, you're awake for about 16, 18 hours. And there's a lot of toxic buildup and sleep is one of the detoxifying process, which has to happen every night. And think of our body as a, a, a concert hall, right? Like, so daytime is when the concert is happening. But nighttime is when the cleanup crew goes in and clean up, clean, clean up the whole place. So next day, when new people come in, the hall is clean. So if you don't have a cleanup crew enough time to clean, there's always a buildup of these toxins, right? So you cannot like just say, I will clean up just on the weekends. You have to do the, the sleep every night to prepare you for the next day. I like that analogy. That's a good one. Can we talk about Fitbits for a second? So Brandon and I both wear ours 24-7. And, you know, I've definitely looked at the sleep tracker when I wake up in the morning. And I wonder if it's accurate or if I should ever worry about what it says. How how good are Fitbits and all these devices at really figuring out what we're doing and when we're sleeping? There are, like, a lot of devices now. They have improved a lot. They are not as good as getting a sleep study, but I think it's uh, pretty useful to have these devices because you get to analyze your sleep on a daily basis at your home situation. Most of the devices use our pulse, our heart rate, our temperature, our movements to analyze our sleep. 
One thing I find about these devices are uh, they can also give you the quantity as well as the quality of your sleep. So it, it can help you kind of look at your sleep pattern and then work on improving it if needed. So I don't know which device is good. Most of them uh, you wear them on the wrist. Uh, there is one called Aura Ring, which you wear on your ring like a wedding band. Uh, I, I heard they're all pretty good. But no matter what you use, if you use the same device, you get a baseline from that device, and then you can work on improving it. So I would say it's very useful to track sleep with these devices than the activity. Yeah, I agree. I, I enjoy the information I get from it, although just speaking back to the insomnia you were talking about, uh, I know sometimes... Just when I look at it the next day and I see that it says that I might not have slept or I woke up so many times per hour, it kind of gives me that anxiety that I didn't get the number of hours of sleep that I needed. And then it makes me almost worry a little bit more about it. So I know that's something to to kind of keep in mind as well because you don't want it to like mentally affect you. Because when I look and I see that maybe I didn't get the allotted number of hours, then I find myself just internally struggling the rest of the day, just knowing that I might not have gotten the sleep that I needed. You can look at it that way, but I think it can also help you to fix some of your sleep habits. For example, let's say you worked out too late and then you have a bad night, so you can kind of change your workout routine where you work out a little bit earlier and see if it improves your sleep quality. So I I think the sleep device, the trackers can help you make some changes to your daytime routine to improve your sleep quality. That's really interesting too because me and Megan are really we've really come on board as far as our fitness goes and I've often wondered that like is it better to like work out at night is it better to work out in the morning because like to me if I'm working out at all then I think it's doing me good and it's obviously making me healthier so is it better to like work out at night or in the morning or is it just kind of personal preference or what sets you up for the best sleep later? So it's better to work out than not work out. So whenever you get a chance, you do it. But I would say you need to at least have a three or four hours between your workout and your sleep because depending on the type of workout, you know, you typically increase your stress hormones during workout, especially if you're doing some high intensity activity or running or even weight training. And for, for if you have a high stress hormone levels, it can definitely affect your sleep quality. Ideally, I would say, you know, if your bedtime is at 10 o'clock, I would say your workout should be around 6 or 7 at the most. Morning versus evening, it is, it is really hard. It's personal preference. You know, sometimes people wake up earlier and they feel energized. So whenever you feel like you can do it, you do it. But I think uh, having a good uh, time lapse of three to four hours between your sleep and your workout is it's a good idea. So I wanted to talk a little bit about sleep disorders because we know that's what you do all day, every day. So when you're seeing patients, what kind of symptoms or complaints are they coming to you with? What, when, do they, when do they start worrying and how do they come to you and what are they talking about? So in sleep, we kind of approach it like, you know, they come in either with insomnia, which is trouble falling or staying asleep. And the other category is hypersomnia, where they have trouble staying awake during the day. And the third less common category is called parasomnias, which is like activities during sleep, you know, night terrors, uh, bedwetting, acting out their dreams. So we try to kind of categorize them between these three classes. 
I would say in my clinic the most common ones are uh, sleep apnea and insomnia, and uh, we see some narcolepsies and other conditions. And then, like, what symptoms would you look for as far as to know that you might have a sleep disorder? Because I know sometimes, like Megan will say that I'm breathing a certain way, or things are things are a little a little out of whack. But it's not very often; it's few and far between. But for like the other spouses out there, like what would they look for in their spouse to let them know that they might actually have a sleep disorder? Definitely, you know, like if you look at sleep apnea, like habitual snoring, like sometimes patients have crescendo, crescendo snoring where the snoring gets louder and louder, and then they see a lapse of breathing for, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and then they start breathing again. Frequent arousals at night, waking up to go to the bathroom every hour, waking up with headache and uh, after seven or eight hours of sleep, still waking up tired. All these things are clues for, you know, poor sleep. They can have restless legs. They can have nightmares. They can act out their dreams. There are a lot of symptoms. But if you look for, you know, sleep apnea, I would say snoring and then stopping to breathe and then choking sensation when you sleep and then waking up with headaches are the few common symptoms. Man, so this can really affect every part of your life then if you're having headaches and barely able to function during the day and tired every single second yeah just there are studies that show just one night of bad sleep can reduce your cognitive function by 15 20 points so it, it really affects your day-to-day functioning and we used to sleep like eight uh, seven and a half to eight and a half hours on average as a u.s population now with the average is six and a half hours so we're getting less sleep and then, you know, we are more stressed and uh, this could be one of the contributing factors for excessive sleep aid use and uh, other uh, drugs to help them sleep and relax. This, just getting not enough sleep could be the underlying problem. Absolutely. Well, speaking of not getting enough sleep, let's let's switch gears to kids for a minute because I know a lot of the time... Uh, adults in the house, they're not sleeping a lot because they happen to have young kids. And we have so many friends on social media in real life that just complain about their kids and they don't happen to be infants actually. They're older kids, but they're waking up multiple times during the night. And thankfully, we don't seem to have that issue with our kids. And I guess we're just super lucky parents. But is this common to have like toddlers or younger children that are constantly waking up at night? We're seeing more and more of this. I think uh, the kids' sleep get worse right after they get their iPhones um, or any kind of smartphone, because it, it, this could be a sleep hygiene could be a major issue. Um, kids are probably sitting in the bed and watching uh, YouTube videos or Snapchatting, and they're constantly aroused by you know um, messages and notifications. So definitely, you need to look at the sleep hygiene issues. If that is fine, you know, then then uh, look for other underlying problems. You know, kids can also have underlying sleep issues like sleep apnea, restless legs, nightmares, night terrors, which could be contributing to sleep issues. But I would say two-thirds of the kids are just poor sleep hygiene and bad sleep habits, uh, especially at the age group you're talking about. Okay. So what are the best ways to encourage good sleep habits, especially for like younger kids, like in that toddler, preschool, elementary kind of age, maybe before they have phones? Well, you know, I know they have their 
Kindles. The bad habit. Yeah, <laughs> limit setting and having a strict, you know, sleep routine at home, leading by example as an adult. You know, if you send them upstairs to sleep and then you're sitting in the living room watching TV and laughing, of course, they are not going to sleep and they're going to t- pick up the habits from you. So setting a good example, again, educating them on importance of sleep to help them function better next day at school. And then having an overall, like, you know, when you set a sleep hygiene habit with one person, it should be the whole family, you know. Have a sleep routine, have a dinner routine, you know, some stretching routine, some breathing exercises, and then turn off the light at a certain time and go to bed. Is it ever too early to create that kind of habit and everything? Because I know for us, our daughter is turning five tomorrow, and she's got we've got a good routine going for her. But our son, he just goes and goes and goes and goes until he basically falls over at seven o'clock, and we throw him in bed, and that's it. Is should we be doing a little bit more, or is that okay when they're still pretty young, like in that one to two age? At one to two age, you know, he's going to bed at seven. That's good, and and he probably needs about you know ten, eleven hours of sleep. If he's sleeping through the night, uh, that's good, and. Uh, he, you have to just keep the same routine, you know, going to bed at that time and then wake him up at a certain time. Um, but I think with your daughter, you know, with the five-year-old, uh, she needs about 10 hours of sleep. Uh, again, giving them, you know, good sleep habits, make sure the bedroom is comfortable, nothing scary, nothing, no uh, artificial light coming through the windows. Um, and, you know, uh, waking him up at a certain time would be the best thing to do. And Dr. Jag, I wanted to talk to you about night terrors, too, because it's something we've asked you personally about in the past. About a year or so ago, our daughter, who was waking up screaming during the night, she would look awake, she would have coherent speech, she'd be calling out specifically for one of us, but then we'd go in there and she was just inconsolable, she didn't want to be touched, we couldn't do anything. Is this a normal and developmentally appropriate thing that's going on? What's actually happening here? So you were describing what's called sleep terrors, which is uh, very common in that age group. Um, Earlier I said, you know, we have insomnia, we have hypersomnia, and then parasomnia. So this falls in the category of parasomnia. In children, the most common form of parasomnia is either sleepwalking or confusional arousal or sleep terrors. They're all about the same, except the severity, the terrors are just, they're terrified and sleepwalking, they just, you know, wake up and walk, do things and go back to sleep. Um, the good thing is all these conditions, uh, they, 100% of the kids seems to outgrow by the age 11 or 12. There is some genetic preponderance, so if you have a family members who had sleep terrors, there's a high risk of having it in, in the children. Typically, we don't treat them. We just reassure them, you know, just uh, turn on the lights, you know, talk to the kid and then put her back to sleep and she will have no recollection of the event. But sometimes, you know, parasomnia can happen if something caused the arousal during a deep sleep uh, because all these events are happening when they're in a very deep delta sleep. So, you know, make sure the kid does not have chronic sleep deprivation. So, for example, if the child is getting only six or seven hours of sleep because of the schoolwork, when she gets that sleep, she's going to have a very high density of deep sleep. So, when the deep sleep density is high, the chance of these parasomnia increases. So, make sure you increase your duration of sleep. That sometimes helps. And then look for other things that could be contributing to the arousal like sleep apnea, which can happen, uh, or restless legs, or sometimes even 
nighttime reflex, uh, which can wake up the kid in the middle of the night and contribute to sleep terrors. As I said, you know, you look for the underlying cause, there's nothing, then you just, you know, uh, increase the sleep duration and then reassure the parents and the kid. They have tried some anticipatory arousal where if, if the event happens at the same time every night, you can go 10 minutes before, just wake her up and just, you know, let her sleep again. Uh, not sure if it helps that much, but rarely we have used some medications uh, if the condition is pretty frequent. Even the medicines used are very small dose of benzodiazepines, which is just short course of and, and invariably we take them off within a few months. Yeah. Uh, and then when you're talking about the kids just getting up at night and it just kind of spurred in my mind that I feel like so often people have sleep problems and they might have gone to their doctor and they might be on Ambien or I hear a lot of people are taking like over-the-counter melatonin. They're just going and buying a melatonin or a sleep aid or a Tylenol PM and they don't really know what if they do have any sleep problems, but I guess my thought is when do they know that they should actually come in to see a sleep specialist such as yourself or when do they know that maybe the Ambien or the sleep aids aren't actually working and they should get a professional's opinion? I don't recommend taking any sleep aid on a regular basis, especially Ambien. It's initially approved for intermittent use for occasional insomnia. Having said that, if you have sleep problem, you know, you have a symptom checklist you can go through or you can talk to your primary care doctor and discuss if the symptoms are severe enough to see a sleep specialist. If, if you're talking about adults, you know, a lot of association between heart disease, hypertension, and sleep apnea and sleep deprivation. So if you have somebody who have trouble controlling your blood pressure, even if you're taking blood pressure medicine, you know, even if you don't have sleep symptoms, I would recommend um, having talking to your primary care doctor and discussing to see if they need a sleep study to rule out uh, if sleep loss could be contributing to their medical problems. And then again, if you have to rely on medications on a regular basis, uh, um, it's better to look into the sleep issues and see what the underlying precipitating and perpetuating factors and treat that rather than just taking Ambien or any kind of sleep aid and just going to sleep. And all these medications can put you to sleep, can, you put, can put you in an unconscious state, but if you have sleep apnea, it's not going to correct it. So you still have the same problem, you're just not aware of it, which is actually worse. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, well, and my thought is, me, me and Meg have been really trying to look at an overall way to better ourselves and be the best versions of ourselves. And a lot of what the guests we talked to on this podcast are about trying to just improve all around. And it sounds like to me that we focus a lot on our fitness and we've started to focus more on healthy eating, but it sounds like we need to put sleep right up there with both of those. And it might even be something that's more important than any of those. Yeah, you really can't get fit without sleep. Um, you know, if you look at fitness or weight training, it's a hermetic response. It's a stress response, right? You're basically tearing your muscles down so when it heals, you know, it heals stronger and healthier, right? So the healing happens after a good diet and a sleep. So if you just keep exercising and not getting good sleep, you're probably hurting yourself during exercise rather than, you know, uh, recovering with, you know, uh, health benefits. 
And then the diet is very interesting. You know, sleep loss, uh, one night of sleep loss can change your neurohormonal system where it can cause significant cravings uh, to like, you know, um, junk food and like high carbohydrate, high fat diet. Um, and when you are well rested and, and uh, you know, feel alert during the day, the cravings are much better. And this is not just psychological. This, this is due to imbalance between your leptin and ghrelin levels, which can be affected by sleep. So if you look at the three pillars of health, I would say the main pillar is sleep. And then if your sleep is excellent, the diet and exercise becomes a very good supplement to improve your overall health. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like this is going to be really great for our listeners to have all this awesome information about sleep. And we just wanted to say thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take Th- care, guys. Thanks, Dr. Jack. Hey, thanks for tuning in to another show of Fools in Love podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast or follow us over on Facebook at Fools in Love podcast or hit us up on Instagram. Megan's at This Average Mom. And I'm at Brandon Giggling. We'd love to hear from you over there. Talk soon.